This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Welcome to the Australian Museum and um, I'm very happy to welcome you this evening. I'd also like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this Australian Museum stands, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and, and pay my respects to their elders of the past, the present, and, and the future. And I'd like to welcome all of you to the fifth of nine talks in the inaugural Human Nature Lecture Series. This is a landmark series that marks the collaboration of four major universities with the museum and with academics from around Australia and the world who are leaders in the field of the environmental humanities. The museum is the custodian of a collection of more than 18 million objects and it provides a record of the environmental and cultural histories of and histories and diversities of the Australian and the Pacific regions. Its scientific collections and its ongoing research informs understanding of some of the most pressing environmental and social challenges facing our region, including the, the loss of biodiversity, a changing climate, and the assertion of cultural identity. And I really believe that the museum is a place where the past meets the future and where understanding and, and care for our world is inspired by the researchers and scientists and cultural specialists by our exhibitions and, and really significantly by events just like this series. Um, this lecture series is striving to investigate and communicate the relationship between people, culture and the environment. So I hope you'll also join us for the remaining talks in the series. We have a terrific lineup of speakers, it's really an extraordinary group um, still to come. And tonight's lecture will also be available on the AM Live podcast, so you can share it. Um, and yeah, I guess we should get going. So to introduce tonight's speaker, um, please welcome Professor, Associate Professor Tom Doran from the Department of Gender and Cultural Studies at the University of Sydney. Thanks. Thank you very much, Tanya. Thank you all for coming. Um, it's a pleasure to have the opportunity to introduce Alice Tepanga Somerville tonight. Um, Associate Professor Tepanga Somerville is a leading scholar of Maori and Pacific uh, Indigenous Literary and Cultural Studies at the University of Waikato. Her work takes up important questions about indigeneity, identity, colonisation, place and storytelling in Aotearoa, New Zealand and beyond. She's interested in the stories that are told about and by the diverse indigenous peoples of Oceania. Stories that narrate lives, pasts and possibilities. These, are story, these stories she shows us are incredible resources, not just for understanding, but for thinking and living otherwise. Associate Professor Tepanga Somerville is the author of numerous essays and articles and of the book Once Were Pacific, Maori Connections to Oceania. Tonight she'll be presenting to us on the topic of Taupata, Taro, Roots, Earth, the Indigenous Politics of Gardening. Please join me in welcoming her. Te mea tua ta ime meia ki ngā tangata wenua o te roi nei, o te wenua nei, um, ko Ngāti Gadigal, no te iwi um, e ora. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge the people who have invited me um, to be here, the kaiwaka or um, this um, 
lecture series. Um, thank you for the invitation, um, Tom, and thank you for the people at the Australian Museum who have brought us together. Um, where I come from, we also like to acknowledge what we call the Ringawera. Those are the people with warm hands who have made sure that we have full tummies and we're nice and warm and comfortable before all of our physical needs are met. So thank you to the, the bloke pouring the drinks and all the people that have made sure um, that we're, we're well looked after tonight. Um, I have my daughter with me today um, and she's 10 months old and she probably thinks that you've all come to see her. Um, <laughs> Hopefully she will not um, dominate too much and my husband will take her out. Um, I hope that she doesn't put you off. Um, I'm, I have some, uh, I have an ability to tune out the baby and I, I hope that, that you guys are all cool with that. In indigenous context, it's kind of how we roll, but I just wanted to um, acknowledge that my babbling little child over there, Titilia, um, uh, is, has traveled with us as well. So that's why she's here tonight. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge, I spent a couple of years living in Sydney, um, and uh, all we did as a family, and um, it, was, it was a great couple of years, um, and we met some really great people, and um, it's really nice, I have a sense of sort of coming home for a bit of a whānau reunion tonight, which is, which is pretty cool. So thank you to um, friends um, and colleagues who have, have come along to Tautoko tonight. What on earth could be political? about gardening. Taupata. In 1994, the foundational Māori writer Jackie Sturm spoke in an interview about a metaphor she engages in her poem, Splitting the Stone. The metaphor is about what she describes as the green space, which is the space of artistic production that can be found, for her at least, between the roses and the taupata. Sturm clarifies in the later interview that taupata, an indigenous New Zealand plant that grows as a shrub or tree and has very shiny fat green leaves, these are the leaves here, um, stands in for the Māori side. Right? So for her, taupata um, stands in for her Māori world, while the roses are the English side. Well, that didn't last long. It was a nice try. <laughs> Thank you, Bula. She means the plants to refer to cultural background but also respective literary traditions. Her point is about the productive creative work that can take place when one manages to find space between the taupata and the roses. The taupata is known botanically as Coprosma repens and in English it's often known as the mirror plant. The taupata is very familiar to me because of its presence on Machi Soames Island in the middle of the Wellington Harbour. Matu Island was returned a few years ago to my tribe and we have this house on its top with a giant dining room table which is my favourite place in the world to write and to be. I spend a lot of time being near Taupata when I'm on the island because it's been used strategically as what's called a pioneer plant in conservation speak. It's extremely hardy and salt resistant and so is used along with another couple of species as the first plants in a process of gradual replanting and rejuvenation of an island that was almost completely cleared. Machu Soames is a very small island in the middle of the Wellington Harbour. You can walk around it in about 45 minutes and that's if you stop to enjoy the view and take a few selfies as you go. Our island is to Wellington a little bit like Alcatraz is to San Francisco, very near a major city but cut off by water. 
After being acquired, to put it politely, by the Crown in the 19th century, the island has been used by Europeans as a prison, a human quarantine, an animal quarantine, and a scientific laboratory. Over a century of these various uses left it completely barren and in dire need of life. Over the past few decades, the island has been gradually and lovingly replanted. Currently under, under the domain of the Department of Conservation, the island has been brought back to fruition by them as well as volunteer groups, including Forest and Bird and the Eastbourne Forest Rangers, which we all call the Eastbourne Power Rangers, because I guess we all watched too many cartoons growing up. This process of replanting involves the deliberate use of gardening in order to turn back time. But what is the time we're trying to turn it back to? And who is the we? We here means the New Zealand Crown in the form of the Department of Conservation or DOC and community groups which tend not to include Māori. On the Forest and Bird website you can read about their contribution to the island and they describe their work as, quote, a grand task to revegetate Matu Somes with a native cloak. Around 130,000 natives were propagated in three nurseries on the island and planted. So successful was the project, the island has been designated a scientific reserve. There's no question that the long-standing and ongoing work of this volunteer group has made a positive and tangible difference to the island. But in 2009, the Crown apologised to my tribe for its many assaults on our people and our places, and one of the things they returned to us, one of the tiny little crumbs they flicked off their well-stocked Wellington table in our direction, was the island. We now own it outright, fee simple. But the ownership is restricted by a co-management arrangement between DOC and our tribe. We get to own it, but only on the terms set by DOC, including the continuity of the scientific reserve and a historic reserve, which is code for retaining a bunch of concrete and wooden buildings and emplacements from various European activities on the island. We own it, and the significance of Māori historical connection to the island is officially in signposts and Treaty of Waitangi findings and all kinds of exciting places, officially recounted and understood. But on the Forest and Bird website, there's no mention of us. Their acts of gardening have replaced ours, and they have been so successful with the gardening that they returned their island to a state that is so good it now yokes us to the crown. All that taupata all that native cloak. But what about the natives? Forest and Bird's history of connection and even access to the island since 1982 reigns supreme here. Elsewhere on the website where they advertise the availability of their lodge on the island for hire, we find the island was once covered in farmland, but Forest and Bird members have been restoring the island since 1982. I do respect and have cups of tea with the people who for years have cut their sandwiches and filled their thermoses and put on their sensible shoes and paid for their own ferry tickets to the island to work in the nurseries. But it also makes me sad. It's a double punishment to lose an island and then to have someone else restore it. How would you feel if you went home this evening and found one of those TV redecorating shows had thrown out all of your things and remodelled your house? Some people might say, but they did a lovely job. Why would you complain about getting a free reno? But how would you even begin to account for what you'd lost? Not just the things, but the projects and dreams that you had in your mind for your place that you wanted to undertake in the future. 
A new paint job loses its shine if it smartly and prettily covers up lines on a doorframe that marked the heights of your growing children. Why would Māori people not be involved in this kind of restoration? What does it mean to restore something? One day I was sitting outside the building allocated to our tribe, um, and don't get all like cultural, you know, house ideas in your head. It's like a three-bedroom suburban like house with a lounge and a whatever that looks like it's been photoshopped in from the suburbs. Um, with my sister and my cousin, we were basking in the summer sunlight. And if you know anything about Wellington, you know we were enjoying every moment of the five minutes we were out there. And someone connected with replanting stopped by for a chat. We ended up talking about how one important element of the replanting program had, after such a long period of time, turned into a plant removal program because some of the trees and other plants that had arrived on the island, either during the early phase of deliberate re replanting or by accident, weren't actually indigenous to it. We asked which plants didn't really belong here, and the person said they were looking at some pine trees. There was like a stand of pine trees, and we weren't surprised at all about that. And then she said, oh, and there's also the pohutukawa. Now, pohutukawa is the iconic New Zealand Christmas tree with bright red blooms that appear in early summer. It has relatives all around the Pacific region as well as elsewhere in New Zealand. One of its cousins is the southern rata, which apparently belongs in the Wellington region. But we were confused. Wasn't pohutukawa indigenous to New Zealand? Like the pine trees, sure, but pohutukawa? We understood the foreign pine trees. Well, the person explained the Pohutukawa doesn't naturally occur south of a horizontal line about halfway up the North Island, which means it's out of place, down in Wellington, further south. The problem here, of course, is the question of what naturally occurring means. I understand what foreign means, but naturally occurring in this case means without any human meddling. And humans had meddled here. The Pohutukawa appears south of its line of natural occurrence because of Māori. We picked it up over hundreds of years and took it places south. And so restoration, reversing the impact of foreign plants on the islands, it's a good thing. Right? But it necessitated, from the point of view of the person we were talking with, the removal of all human agency. Restoring nature to its most natural form, according to this logic, prefers an ecosystem free of human intervention, free of individual or collective acts of deliberate cultivation, free of gardening. Well, free of Māori gardening, but propped up and maintained by non-Māori volunteer gardening. The island that had been stripped bare of plants had become itself an argument for stripping the land bare of humans as well. We were to turn back time, as Sheila would say. It's always nice to get to quote her, I say. It's more interesting than Foucault most days of the week. But we were to turn it back, not just to prior to the European theft and devastation of land. We were to turn it all the way back to a time prior to human arrival. Speaking of human arrival, what on earth could be political about Taro? Machu Soames is a double-barreled name for our small island that's now forced to wear its post-colonial history in triplicate, as Machu, as Soames, and since 1997, as Machu Soames. The island is named after Machu, a granddaughter of the great Māori voyager explorer Kupe. And nearby to Machu, there's another smaller island, Makaro, which is named after Machu's sister. 
The island is also named after Joseph Soames, a boat builder in the UK, who never made it out to the country that named an island after him. What a missed opportunity for him. Kupen named these harbour islands when he had first arrived in our not-so-tropical islands from actually tropical Polynesia, and he and his travelling party enjoyed using our small protected harbour as a base from which to explore the gigantic cold islands unlike anything they'd seen for millennia. As he left the harbour to finally sail home, he named the islands as a prophecy and promise that his descendants would return and populate this place. And they did. We did, and over time, we became Māori. We're the babies of the Pacific, the last to arrive in our home islands after a long, complex, and if I might say so myself on behalf of Pacific people, incredibly impressive journey from Asia in the west, all the way across the massive body of water that covers a third of the Earth's surface, through the central Pacific, and finally to eastern Polynesia, and the major departure points of Samoa, Taputapuatea, and French-occupied Polynesia, and the Cook Islands. The last three places for Pacific arrival Rivals were Hawaii, Rapa Nui, or Easter Island, and Aotearoa. I do just want to, this is in brackets, to remind myself to do this, I do just want to take a moment here to note that when I recount this particular version of what's sometimes referred to as the peopling of the Pacific, with its feats of navigation and thousands of years of relatives saying goodbye to relatives and moving on to the next place, I want to take the time to gesture towards our simultaneous understandings of ourselves of people who have clear and ongoing and back to infinity connections to the landscapes and their various gods in the respective places we currently call home. As I've argued before, in the Pacific, we find no contradiction between arriving from somewhere and having always been there. We're like, yeah, we can do that. We can like always have been there and arrive from somewhere. Like, What's contradictory about that? So here we are, at the peopling of the Pacific. Every once in a while, some outsider decides we couldn't, couldn't have been clever enough to have deliberately navigated so impressively. But these racist critiques have generally been put to bed for a while. There's general acceptance that our ancestors traveled carefully, methodically, and skillfully. No accidental drift or winning the navigation lottery, more like thoroughly prepared expeditions, including careful selection of plants, taro, coconuts, yam, breadfruit, and the whole gang to be carried on each journey. We talk quite a bit at the moment about the scientific skill of our Pacific ancestors in relation to navigation, but we've actually also always been gardeners, propagators, seed savers, planters, weeders, irrigators and innovators upon arrival in each new Pacific site. All Pacific cultures include a wide range of expertise connected to gardening. In every Pacific place, there are calendars, knowledge about indicators between different species in an ecosystem, ways of managing soil and water, and so on. Gardening practices in the Pacific reflect the sheer diversity of the region, including the experiences of some Pacific people as voyagers and adapters over a very long period of time, and the experiences of other Pacific people living and gardening in the same place for thousands of years. Which brings us to taro. Taro, one of the oldest domesticated plants in the world, has been distributed through human and natural means for millennia. In the Solomon Islands, an early stop on the pathway from Asia to Aotearoa, excavations at a specific cave that are dated between 20 and 28,000 years old yielded stone tools on which they found taro grains. 
I felt quite relieved to read that. I'm glad to know that my tendency to not remember to clean off my gardening tools is something I can now claim as inherited trait from my long ago seafaring ancestors. And so we've had Tarot in New Zealand since Kupe's descendants arrived and took up residence in our islands. The Tarot had been carried from island to island, planted there, stored, brought to the next island for, for millennia. Although, like the paper mulberry, which is the source of bark, which makes tapa or masi or siapo or hiapo, and which could only survive in the two warmer spots of the North Island, taro does struggle to grow in New Zealand's cold. In my book about Māori connections to the Pacific, I wrote about the paper mulberry tree, which we call the aute, which we continued to grow despite being, only being able to produce tapa scraps big enough for earrings and decoration, unlike the rest of the region where it's like really warm and they can get these massive sheets of tapa and wrap themselves in it and decorate rooms. We're like, we have these nice earrings. They're very lovely with a little dangle of tapa right there. Writing about the Oten in his 1923 discussion of Māori clothing, Te Rangihiroa cites an account from 1880 recalling the Oten in the far north had been nearly destroyed by the cattle of the Europeans earlier that century. Te Rangihiroa follows with an observation that, quote, the plant is now extinct in New Zealand. So we managed to keep preserving that plant, which didn't like the temperature at all, but we kept working really hard to make sure we could still make our little earrings over all those many, many generations. And then along came the cattle. This tragic final turn of events for the Ote was therefore brought about by the introduction of European farming. They were figuratively, but also literally, trampled to death. Along with taro and paper mulberry, our ancestors brought and then cultivated hue, or gourds, ufi, or yam, tipore, cabbage tree, and kumara, sweet potato. Although kumara is a bit of a special one because we went over and picked that one up from South America. Samoan writer, artist, and teacher Albert Wendt published a poetry collection called From Manoa to a Ponsonby Garden in 2013, and his collection uses gardening to explore the relationship between the peopling of the Pacific, specific Pacific places, and in one poem, Taro. The collection split into two sections. One focuses on Manoa, the valley in Honolulu in which he lived with his um, partner Reina Whaiteri while they taught at the University of Hawaii, whose main campus is in Manoa. And then the second section is called A Ponsonby Garden, and that's made up of relatively domestic poems that describe his and Reina's garden in their home in Ponsonby, an Auckland suburb to which they returned after their stint in Hawaii. The collection is a thoughtful reflection on moving across space in the first section with time spent in Hawaii, but also moving through time as Albert reflects on ageing. A humorous and very cute link between the two sections is that Albert and Rainer have a cat in New Zealand called Manoa, who likes to spend a lot of time in the Ponsonby Garden and whose name appears in each poem of the second half. So if you're familiar with the Manoa um, as a valley in Hawaii, you might giggle as you read the poems um, that tell you that Manoa is now lazing in the sun, avoiding an overkeen grandchild and hunting insects. But this is Albert Wendt's style, like he kind of puts little things in there to, to keep you guessing. Another link is a repetition of the word lanai, the word that's widely used in Hawaii to refer to a porch or balcony. The poems in the Ponsonby Garden section tend to focus less on describing the flowers and other plants and more on the work required to keep them alive and flourishing. <coughs> the garden in Ponsonby 
takes a lot of work. Each poem notes different tasks like pruning, planting, mowing, chopping, digging, weeding. And this work draws attention to the workers, not often went himself, who's often observing from the lanai, at everyone who's like looking after his garden, but in various poems he names his children, his grandchildren, and his partner. So as he describes the work in the garden, he also is building up the family tree. Excuse the pun. In this way, gardening is not merely a product-focused or kind of individual leisure activity, but is tied up with the nurturing and affirmation of human and non-human relationships. Wendt opens the first section, Manoa, with a poem called The Ko'olau. The Ko'olau is the name of the mountain range that sits at the back of the Manoa Valley, which is in turn defined and enclosed by its many, many peaks. After describing his own repeated attempts to depict the Ko'olau in sketches, because he's a visual artist as well as a poet, he reflects on what he calls the other mountains in my life, Vaia and Mango Fetu in Samoa, and Taranaki in New Zealand because he went to boarding school there. The region of Taranaki, a mountain from which I'm descended, incidentally, was the site of vicious colonial violence in the 19th century, and Wendt notes that the local indigenous people were, quote, driven eventually from their lands, but not from the defiant struggle. Their descendants continue today, forever, until victory. Having brought himself and us to acknowledge the ongoing presence and struggle of indigenous people, he moves his focus back to the Ko'olau. The Ko'olau watched the first people settle in the valley. The Kanaka Māori planted their ancestor, the Kalo, in the mud of the stream and swamps. And later, in the terrace lo'i they constructed, their ancestor fed on the valley's black blood. They fed on the ancestor and flourished for generations. You can see here the painting he did in Hawaii, <coughs> excuse me, which includes specific sections of this poem in which he presented to the Department of English there before returning to New Zealand. I had the privilege of teaching this poem to Pacific Lit students in this department, in that department, and each semester we'd all trot up to the department lounge and spend a class talking about the poem and looking at this amazing painting. Wendt is thinking through what it means to write and paint and be present in Hawaii when one is from the Pacific but not Hawaiian. He describes his own ability, his inability to capture the ko'olau on paper, but he also demonstrates his respectful persistence to keep trying to get it right. However, in the context of this evening's discussion, one of the things that strikes me about this section of the poem is that he doesn't merely acknowledge land and then people attached to the land. He slows down and he traces the specific engagement of the people with the land through planting and gardening. The first act, the first act by which Kanaka Māori or Hawaiian people assert permanent presence and make the valley their home is the planting of their ancestor, the Kalo. Kalo, of course, is the Hawaiian uh, word for taro, and Wendt mentions the complex, unique, and very efficient wet irrigation system that Hawaiians developed in their islands, a terraced system known as the lo'i. In this stanza, the concept of land is rendered in Hawaiian terms because the Hawaiian word for land is aina, which means that which feeds. Their ancestor fed on the valley's black blood. They fed on the ancestor. The black blood here is the rich volcanic soil, and so the act of gardening provides the mechanism by which the blood of the land can nurture and is connected to the blood of the people. 
So the aina feeds the people by definition and also in practice. But why does went refer to the kalo, that go-between which feeds off the land and then feeds the people as the ancestor? <clears throat> well, according to Hawaiian history, the first offspring of two of their primordial parents was Haloa Naka, who was stillborn. When the child was buried, it grew into the first kalo. The second child of the same parents was also called Haloa and was the first human. And so Hawaiians understand that the Talo, the Kalo, the Taro, is their ancestor. It's their nurturing elder sibling that will always look after them and feed them. Taro continues to travel around the Pacific region, feeding the people who plant it in gardens wherever we go. When my daughter was born a few months ago, a friend of mine brought her a taro plant. It was from her grandfather's garden, my friend's grandfather's garden, and it arrived in a nice concrete pot with a fashionable geometric teal pattern on it. It was for us to plant for our girl, but seeing as she was born in August, and we live in New Zealand, it wasn't a good time to plunge it into the icy soil. Funnily enough, my friend and her daughter brought it over to her house just a few days after I'd sent in the abstract for this talk, which, in which I'd, of course, included a reference to Taro. And I was like, oh, and here it is, Exhibit A, coming in the front door in a nice pot. I was thinking about it when I was writing the abstract as a Pacific crop and a symbol as well as material evidence of the gardening knowledge and practices of the region. I hadn't been thinking about it as a plant we also still tend in New Zealand. And I admit, I was kind of surprised when she explained its source. What we brought from tropical Polynesia and gardened for many generations changed rapidly once Europeans arrived with their new crops, their new agricultural methods, and their appetite to cut us off from our food supplies. Our diet has shifted dramatically, and our tongues have been colonized not only by changing the language they speak, but also the tastes they recognize and enjoy. Things we used to grow and eat as staple foods are no longer on the menu for most of us. I can probably tell you 50 ways to prepare potato or kumara, but I didn't learn to cook taro until I married a Fijian. We eat less taro now, and when I think it, when we eat it, we think about it as a Pacific but not Maori vegetable. In New Zealand's cold soils, after all, the taro struggles to grow its hearty, nourishing corn, the nice fat part of the root system that we generally think of when we imagine eating taro. But the plant can still grow its leaves. Migrants from the Pacific who have made their homes in New Zealand over the past decades have figured out ways to continue to innovate the gardening practices that they've been innovating for thousands of years. And to mix my metaphors, and I, maybe this is a crazy way to put it, they've been making taro leaf lemonade out of too cold to grow roots, lemons. Taro continues to be a crop that says some things work and some things don't. Some things need to be read, and I shouldn't have tried to read it out loud. Taro continues to be a crop that sustains Pacific migrants to new environments. And even though it's extremely rare to find taro leaves available as part of the cash economy through shops or markets in New Zealand, 
tuttle plants and an underground, mostly Facebook organised economy, you know, they are thriving in New Zealand backyards. Last Christmas saw us lined up on a suburban street in South Auckland along with other Pacific families while we waited for the bundles of fresh tuttle leaves to be picked by the members of an entire extended family we could see working away hurriedly in their garden that took up almost all of the backyard of their rented property. This is about innovation and resilience, and accepting that leaves without roots is better than no tuttle at all. Over winter in New Zealand, the tuttle plant dies off, um, and what you can see here is my daughter inspecting her dead tuttle plant, her dead-looking tuttle plant. It appears to have been lost to the weather entirely, but the corm of the tuttle, that very bit that seems to underperform in our cold soil, stays alive, and in spring, new shoots will, will come. Now this seasonal die-off doesn't actually happen to tuttle plants in the tropical Pacific. They just keep on growing because it keeps on being warm. So this is a new thing for tuttle to be doing down in our neck of the woods. And lack of edible roots makes the New Zealand grown tuttle a somewhat unbalanced or incomplete plant. But it does mean that my daughter will grow up in the Waikato eating fresh roro or cooked tuttle leaves, even though all of the tuttle flesh she will eat in New Zealand will be imported, either fresh or frozen. She will eat the leaves of her gifted plant, but never the roots. What could be political about roots? In her poem, Ha'avina, Hawaiian teacher and poet Mehana Vaughan links the desecration of lo'i terraces with the expansion of US military control over specific Hawaiian sites and also names the particular violence enacted on roots. How can they ask, no take, more aina, start bombing again ancient lo'i terraces of Waikane, radiate further from Pohakuloa, fill the place between watchful volcanoes, tanks crushing lava, mamani leaves quivering, stirred up dust, palila home, striker brigade, national security, whose homeland? 20-ton vehicles unleashed, smashing trees and roots, burrows and webs, nests and homes, scattering pohaku, spreading seeds, pounding dirt. Roots, of course, are both literal and metaphoric here. In her 1999 story, Te Wā a Home, Sydney-based Māori writer and artist Jean Rickey describes a young Māori man as an indigenous child on foreign shores cut off from your roots. Roots. He's not cut off from physical roots, but from the kind of non-physical sustenance that cultural roots provide. There's a reason roots works as a metaphor for culture. They're unseen, but they convert the environment into nourishment and stability. Gardening is about providing nourishment, but it's also about preserving and passing on knowledge. We readily use the term roots to refer metaphorically to one's connections to place and to community, and land and the garden becomes that which feeds in, but also beyond the physical realm. The significance of the garden is related to all the bits you can't see the roots. The restoration of lo'i has been a significant strand of the Hawaiian sovereignty movement and educators in Hawaii have identified the significance of working in the mud of a color patch. The lo'i has become a classroom for schools all the way through to universities over there. The act of gardening and the literal reconnection with the land that it involves can be profound. 
Following on from the stanza about desecration and violent upheaval, Vaughan describes a remedy to all of this imbalance. As anakala ere ka nana tills, softened soil, breathing it with air, turning palolo's clay, adding sweet dry grass, soft sand, mulching, kneading, hoeing, fluffing, walking backwards, stepping tiptoe, careful not to tread over this bed, once palu, soft, pala, ripe, no footprints. Here, an elder is restoring life to the land through gentle steps, the opposite of how the military has treated the land. But rather than the removal of footprints being a symbolic erasure of humans and our activities, it's to prepare the soil for human interaction. <clears throat> At the Sydney Environment Institute workshop I attended yesterday, I didn't write the entire paper last night, but I just thought I'd pop this in. Our conversations turn to the question of what it means to clean up. In this poem, Vaughan opens by talking about teaching her students to clean up after themselves and contrasts this with the way the US military leaves land littered with leftovers of its activities. In our discussion yesterday, we talked about how maybe the physical or indeed legal act of cleaning up isn't by itself enough in the context of colonial injustice because it hasn't put right the relationships that were ruptured through the act of making things in need of cleaning. Last night as I read through this paper, to make sure it didn't run for three hours, and I assure you it doesn't, it's all good, I realised this helped me think more about what's happening in this poem. It's not a form of restoration that stops with the removal of particular footprints. There's another step that, re that required that restores relationships and balance. Gardening in the next stanza of the poem, after all, is educative and healing. He shows the students how to plant two gentle hands, scoop a puka, e nana aku. Make sure you watch carefully, carefully. See how he holds the huli, the stalk. Cut it clean, careful not to bend. See, there, that is where it grows from. Cut it lightly, mai kai. Now two hands, place it just so deep, softly mounding the soil, planning your exit, never to step over the kalo, disrespectful. Keep it soft, stepping gentle, careful, not full weight, easy, easy, malie, between the rows of your kupuna. The heaviness and weight and chaos of colonialism is countered by gentleness, and the students are, by the end of the poem, not only instructed in good behaviour, good gardening skills and Hawaiian values, but they are also returned to their right relationship with each other, but also with their ancestors, their roots. The poem ends with the students, between the rows of your kupuna. Kupuna here referring to the ancestor kalo, and also all of their elders and ancestors. The garden is a site of physical activity, but also a site of instruction and reconnection. Rose of Kupuna brings to mind the tracing of genealogy. The students take their place between rows of ancestors before them and descendants that will follow behind. This is what restoration looks like. This restores what matters, restoring people to their position in the rose of kupuna by working with plants and earth. What on earth could be political about earth? 
gardening can seem like an incredibly unpolitical activity when you're wandering around the local garden centre, popping some tomato seedlings into the trolley, or when you're quietly weeding or scraping mud out from under your fingernails. There's a reason that gardening is understood in relation to meditation and the relieving of stress. But gardening involves soil, dirt, earth, land, whenua, in the, Māori land, in the Māori language, land is referred to as whenua. I'm calling it whenua, even though where I come from we call it whenua, but I know there's some like coasties and other crazy Māoris here, so for everybody's sake, I'll say it in like the standard Māori way. <laughs> land is referred as, to as whenua, and once we say the word whenua, we can't help but consider the famous pun. Whenua also means placenta. The land provides all of the sustenance we need in the way that the placenta provides for an unborn child. But more than this pragmatic parallel, whenua is an act of love between the mother and the child. Papatua Nuku, the earth mother, loves us by allowing us to be nourished from the land. And at the same time, as vulnerable humans who actually really don't stand a chance when we're left out on the elements or beyond specific resources like water or food for very long at all, we can trust, without needing to consciously think about it, like the baby in the womb, that the whenua will provide for all of our needs. We are in her embrace, and the land is the interface between ourselves and her. Gardening involves soil, dirt, earth, land, whenua. It's only the privileged person who gets to talk about gardening without thinking about land. It's only the person who hasn't had their land stolen who gets to talk about gardening without needing to consider the impact of an abrupt disconnection from food security and knowledge transmission. All around the Pacific, gardening and cultivation is shaped by colonial impacts on the relationships between people and earth. What happens when the whenua can no longer nourish? In her poem, Bad Coconuts, the recently departed and cherished poet and scholar Teresia Teiwa, um, who's Banaban, writes about the devastating impact of weapons testing on the soil in which Pacific people have grown their food. An apple a day keeps the doctor away, but the, a coconut a day will kill you if you live on Morurua, if you visit Whangataufa, return to Inuitak, resettle Bikini, a coconut a day will kill you. The poem is sung, chanted on the album of poetry Teranisia, which she recorded with Samoan writer Sia Figal. And I can't read the poem without like putting her little rhythm into it. It draws attention to the impact of weapons testing in the region that has contaminated the earth to the point that gardening in, on some islands now is a fatal act. Nothing grown there can be eaten and all must be imported. The politics of food, a massive discussion and not, time that we, not one we have time to talk a lot about this evening, are connected to the politics of land. Eating cultivated crops from these contaminated islands is necessarily replaced by the importation of foreign crops. When he was growing up in Suva, my husband and his father, along with other members of their neighbourhood, kept a garden from which they fed their families. It was a large stretch of land, partly under a very tall communication transmitter, 
I thought it was a power pylon. And then when I checked with Vula that, like, it was okay for me to, like, share the family story about the garden, he was like, it was a communication transmitter. I'm like, oh, it was like a tall thing that was metal. Uh, anyway, it was a communication transmitter. And they practiced gardening techniques that each of the members of the neighborhood had learned in the village prior to migrating to the big smoke of Suva. A few years ago, the US erected a large, shiny new embassy, which is surrounded by an enormous system of fences, concrete, and security measures. There's no room for a garden now. The site has been reclaimed, actually renationalized, given how embassies work. And the families that formerly had gardens just over the back uh, edge now of the US embassy are forced to enmesh themselves more closely with the cash economy of town. Capitalism seeps into earth from so many directions. In her poem, Cityfied, Hawaiian poet Ku'oloha Ho'omanawanui is less hopeful than Vaughan when she reflects on her childhood being instructed in the taro patch because you can't talk about the mud, the earth of the lo'i, without considering the astronomical cost of land in Hawaii. She says, our lo'i kalo fed generations. No one lives there anymore. Who can afford it? I sat with an uncle of mine who explained a popular food court in central Wellington was pretty much exactly the same spot as a garden where my great-grandfather and his family would have been involved in the growing of food for the small remnant local community in his time. What used to be a family space is now a frantic, plastic-wrapped everybody space in which we hunt for a spare table along with everybody else. We eat, but the food is not from our whenua, and we have to hand over money to do so. My uncle saw the funny, or at least coincidental, side of the strikingly similar yet incredibly different uses for the same bit of land. But usually when we think about these things as funny, it's because if you didn't laugh, you'd cry. Gardens require land. And in a colonial context, land is highly politicised. The events in Taranaki that went referred to in his poem, The Ko'olau, relate to Pariaka, a robust pan-tribal settlement that threatened the colonial government to the point of a full-scale invasion in November 1881. But leading up to that 1881 moment, the active militarised wars of the early 1860s resulted in the Crown passing legislation that punished those tribes who fought against its extension of control into our territories. There was a mass confiscation of land. When I grew up in primary school, when the teacher confiscated something from you, you got it back at the end of the day, but it's not that kind of confiscation. There was mass confiscation of land, which meant suddenly every Māori person in Taranaki and other specific regions was living on their own land one day, and then magically the next day they were living on someone else's. How do we fight back? by acting as if the confiscation never happened, by refusing to accept that Crown legislation could perform such a magical act. Our leaders at Pariaka, Te Witi and Tōu, who um, references in his poem, proposed that we would fight with passive resistance rather than violence. And so for week after week, month after month, members of our community would go out onto the land that had been marked out by government surveyors and pull out the pegs. But more than this, more than just dismantling the colonial apparatus, they planted gardens. Gardening as a passive form of warfare, literally turning swords into plowshares, but not, it has to be said, to mark the end of war as much as to mark a new phase of fighting it. 
Jackie Sturm, the senior writer whose comments about roses and taupata are opened with, has famously written a poem, E Waiata Tene Mo Pariaka, which includes the lines, Have you heard of Pariaka, where Taranaki Iwi gathered, seeking a way to keep their land? Non-violence was their choice, peace their aim, raukura their badge, plows their only weapons. They pulled down fences, pulled out pegs, then ploughed whatever the settlers claimed was theirs. This is the politics of gardening. Hundreds of men were arrested without trial for gardening. They soon filled up all the jails in the colony. And so the leftovers were put into caves, into work camps, sent further and further away. Forty years ago last month, and almost a century after the storming of Pariaka, another Māori community publicly and peacefully asserted their refusal to accept the Crown's account of its own acquisition of their land. Turns out they didn't believe in the magical acts that turned land from ours to theirs either. The Ngāti Whātua community at Bastion Point in Ōrake, a suburb of Auckland, occupied a specific area of land the Crown was determined to control. They stayed there for 507 days, and on the 507th day, over 200 were arrested. Similar numbers to the number that had been arrested 90 years earlier at Pariaka. <coughs> In a recently published recollection from Andrew Robb, a Pākehā person who was part of the occupation, he described a deliberate act of gardening. He says, She showed me a photo in the Herald, a terrific shot from a low angle looking up across blades of grass and the tines of a rotary hoe to the serious face of Eruini Eddie Hawke, and as he ploughed a garden on Bastion Point, I thought, gosh, this is serious. They're planning to be there for a while. But Mere couldn't suppress her laughter. It's not even her voice trailed off into giggles as she tried to explain why it was so funny. It's just a thing. She exploded, gasping for breath and dabbing the tears in her eyes. What she meant was that it wasn't a proper garden. She knew it was far too late in the year to be planting kumara. It was actually a challenge to the authorities, a very Māori assertion that the land provided sustenance to Ngāti Whātua, physically, culturally, spiritually and now politically. Mary was in a good mood because she knew that Eddie Hawke and his whānau were sticking it to the government on behalf of all Māori. Over 40 years later, just over a week ago, this account was published uh, last month, Joe Hawke's daughter Sharon told a crowd on Bastion Point that the late great Dennis Hansen had derided Eddie. He said the garden, and perhaps by implication the whole protest, was too late. At the end of the season, Eddie presented Dennis with a box of kumara from the garden. The kumara was so big that three of them filled the box. Dennis wept. Perhaps he saw a sign that Rungo, God of peace and agriculture, blessed the occupation. Gardening requires land. The act of gardening claims that you have a relationship with land, not just today, but a projected future relationship. And this is why gardening and rented property can be quite disillusioning. And gardening is about asserting your right and need to live. Anakala eddy, ka'anana tills, softened soil, breathing it with air, turning palolos clay, adding sweet dry grass, soft sand, mulching, kneading, hoeing, fluffing, walking backwards, stepping tiptoe, careful not to trip over this bed, once palu, soft, pala, ripe. 
You plough for the future. Ploughing is the breaking up of soil in order to prepare to return and plant again. Gardening is a deeply and enduringly hopeful act. No wonder it threatened a settler colony that aimed and still aims in many ways to achieve our disappearance. What on earth could be political about gardening? What indeed? Thank you. Thank you so much for such a, a wonderful, rich, multi-threaded talk. Um, we have time now for a few questions. I haven't actually checked the time. I'm assuming we did. Um, so... I expect you um, to talk about alcohol when you started on roots, talking about how political roots are. Is there a tradition of brewing alcohol from the roots of the Tarot Um I'm glad you've entered the. Glad you entered the at this moment. Um, I, I don't know. Um, there is a tradition of brewing alcohol from pineapple. Can you brew it from turtle? Yeah. There you go. Um, because we no, not just pineapple and stuff, eh? Coconut. Yeah. Hawaiians do. I don't know. I'm I'm keen to find out more. There's quite a tradition of brewing things. Right. Uh, I confess, I can't think of any off the top of my head. Well, we've, I've got one. Um, Kia ora, Alice. Oh, Kia ora. I just was really interested in what you were saying about politics of gardening. And this is also because I a Maori person, but I live in Australia and we have a tradition of supporting talented animals, so we want to support Aboriginal Australians here. And um, one thing I think that's really relevant is um, this idea of gardening providing a connection and a claim to land in the Australian context. So I'm not sure if you've heard of a book called Dark Eden. Mm. Um, at the moment, Vanguard Arts Centre is just doing production on that, and it's fantastic. And I think wow. the thing that really revealed to me, like I didn't remember until I saw that, was that um, this idea of Aboriginal Australian people not having gardens was one of the things that underpinned this myth of um, terminalism. This right. idea that this land was not settled, therefore there was no right to the land. Things are really important. Um, I'm sort of really glad you brought that up because I had another move that I was going to make in my paper and I was just saying on the train on the, on the way in I was like I regret taking that out 
Um, one of the reasons I wanted to talk about Taipata is because when I lived here in Australia, um, I was intrigued to discover that Taipata is in fact um, a, a noxious weed in New South Wales and Victoria. And I found that really intriguing to think about, that for me, coming from Matthew Soames, Taipata is about my connection to the place, right? It's the super Māori plant, according to Jackie Stem's poem, right? It's like it's her Māori, you know, go-to touch point, right? But the problem is that when Taipata comes over here, um, apparently people have brought it over here because it makes nice hedges. to a gymnast, it turns out, a little contortionist. So, um, so it makes really nice hedges, the problem being that it, um, it crowds out indigenous Australian species. Um, and I've reflected on this, um, thinking about what it means to be a Māori person in Australia. And it can be really problematic to start comparing indigenous people to flora and fauna, because we know where that gets us. On the other hand, I think we can be prompted to think about the ways in which um, sometimes our assertions of being indigenous people on our own terms, um, even if they're coming out of what we think of as a, as a good place and a culturally intact place, can, regardless, in Australia, actually do the work of crowding out those voices, those indigenous voices, um, that, that really should, um, should be in the soil here. Um, so, so it's a struggle for me thinking about um, taupata as being something which is um, super Māori over there and then a problem over here. Um, I, don't, I don't think that my solution is to say that the 20% of the Māori community that lives in Australia all needs to move home. Like, it's not about saying, you know, oh great, well eradication works for noxious weeds, so let's round up all you people and bring it. Like, I don't think that's where this metaphor takes us to, but I think it does take us to a place of thinking about the ways in which um, when one's used to asserting indigeneity, um, in one place, it can be defam defamiliarising to then find that one is actually the settler in another place. Um, so thank you very much for asking me um, and you know, challenging me to think a bit more about that. Kia ora. Um, thank you so much. Um, I was wondering, the act of stealing land for you is it the act of stealing food security and knowledge transmission as is I mean, I think it has that potential. So we kind of joked about it. So the, so, the, so again, I want to like be really clear that our tribal house on the island really is a three-bedroom house from the suburbs, which has been plonked on the island. Um, there are five of them on one ridge. It's from when the island was a science reserve, and all the scientists got a house, <laughs> and. All their, all their wives wanted houses. The houses are like, were so engineered for these particular scientists that the different houses, the, the kitchen benches are at different heights because they measured how tall each of these wives were. So, and they got, they got the, the bench height that would work for them. So, um, so we're thinking about a very kind of... When you go to Machu Soames and stay in our tribal house, you're not having this like beautiful, deep tribal experience that you might have if you're in one of our carved houses. 
and one of our whare tipuna, right? And a whare whakairo, right? So there's, there's these kind of very cultural spaces and our house over there is not one of them, right? In those terms. And yet something always happens when people come to Machu for the first time who are connected to that place. There's something profound. And we, we kind of joke about it, that when, when someone comes from the first time, they kind of have a detox sleep. It's weird, but true, that in, any of our cousins or relations that we bring there for the first time, they'll just have this very long, not like, you know, years on end, it's not like, you know, fairy tale land, right? But so they'll, they'll have this very deep sleep. Um, and there's a profound connection that happens just from being on the land. Because our land was so lovely, um, the Europeans really liked it and turned it into a capital city. And what that means is that just about all of our land is covered in concrete. Um, what that means is there are very few opportunities for my tribe to get to go and engage with land in certain ways. We're not allowed to garden on the island. Um, we wanted to have a, we thought it would be nice to have a garden. We're not allowed to garden because we would be bringing introduced crops. We thought it would be nice to have like lettuces and stuff so we could, I don't know, have a salad with your sausages on your, you know, Friday night barbie or whatever when you're staying over there with your cousins. Um, we're not allowed to garden because the Department of Conservation um, determines which plants come onto the island, which ones don't. Um, and yet, there's just something about being on that whenua. Yeah, that's profound. Um, kia ora. Um, you spoke pretty clearly about the abilities and leeway with regards to dogs and the permanent conservation uh, on the island of you. And I, <clears throat> I think uh, immediately my uh, schoolmates, Waharua, the Iha, Pukutapu, beautiful. Mm. Um, is there any sort of, or would you support our um, Maori microbiologists such as the White or the um, doing some type of GMO to propagate uh, things that are threatened like torta, um, some forms of, like say, per, paper mulberry bark tree mm. or anything like that, like similar to what they have done with the Urana in Hawaii. Mm. I don't have an answer I'd want to <laughs> share immediately because that's quite the big question and it has a lot of strands to it. Um, but I will say that one of the things that has really struck me has been um, the stuff around the colonisation of the palate. And we talk so much about it, right? We talk so much about our tongues aren't speaking the right language anymore, but we're also not eating the right kai anymore. We know what that's doing for us. We still have such short life expectancies, and you know, we know what that's doing for us physically, but it's, it's doing something else for us as well. Um, and so I... I am, am gaining this passion. <laughs> I don't want to decolonise my tongue hard out because, you know, I still quite enjoy the old fry bread, you know. So, you know, the old give and take, but a golden syrup, you know, lovely. But, um, but there's something I think, um, uh, and, and there, are, there are things happening, and of course, at the kind of grassroots level at home around people who are kind of going, let's, um, let's small scale think about um, food security and food sovereignty and, you know, 
um, there have been a couple of moments in my life when I've walked into a supermarket and seen a Māori food item. Right? A. Like, there was um, one, I don't know how they got it, but one supermarket for a while was selling these Māori potatoes. That's what it said at Countdown or whatever, right? I've lived in, I haven't lived in New Zealand all of my life, but I've lived in New Zealand enough of my life that I would like to think that Tetelia will be able to walk into a supermarket um, and buy foods that come from our whenua, you know, our, our diets need to change. Um, and I guess I'm more interested in conversations about what we can add rather than just what we have to give up. Mm. And if that requires science to help us out, bro, we've been scientists for millennia, right? Like it's just about, hey, I mean, that's how I see it. It's just about finding the right ways to manage issues around Modi and so on when it comes to GMO stuff, yeah? But the, those are conversations with people with much bigger and, and culturally rooted brains than mine. Thanks for the speech. Um, you just mentioned food sovereignty. Do you, could you tell us anything about the sort of food sovereignty movements happening in New Zealand or in <laughs> um, Probably not a lot, um, because a lot of the stuff that's happening in New Zealand is quite localised. Um, there are networks. Um, one of the things that, um, and also I've, I've lived outside New Zealand for a few years and I've just moved back last year, so um, the nature of these kinds of networks, and I've also moved to a part of New Zealand that I haven't lived in before, so my, my food sovereignty buddy networks um, are not in the area that I live in anymore. Um, but there is um, an increasing kind of conversation around the relationship between kai food and, and sovereignty. Um, and thinking about what that means. Um, some of the things that that means in a Māori context relates to manakitanga. So um, manakitanga is how you look after people, um, hospitality. So some of this conversation um, at home is around people going, how do we show hospitality to our visitors when they come to our marae? What kind of kai do we give them? So um, there, was, um, there was recently a very large um, gathering of people around the Kingitanga, I think it was, and they decided, I think they had all vegan food or something. I don't know if everyone had to go and douse themselves with McDonald's afterwards or what to kind of balance, I don't know. But, 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 there's, it, but it, was, um, it was sort of described as an attempt to think about what manakitanga looks like. So I, I guess what I'm thinking about here is the way that sovereignty takes many forms, and one of the forms that it takes in a Māori cultural context is manakitanga. Um, and, um, and so there are people having these conversations around how do we, how do we provide for our guests. So marae gardens, thinking about the kai that we provide, that we eat communally, yeah? Going back to the, the idea of having native indigenous foods in supermarkets, are there conversations happening around that? And is there a potential to shift the consumer mindset and make people aware of how important See, as soon as I said supermarket, I was like, do I mean that? There's a little voice in my head, do I mean supermarket? Because I think one of the things that actually also kind of strike, you know, strikes me, and I talked about it a bit in my talk, was the way that capitalism just kind of seeps into the stuff all over the show. Um, and I think the Tuttle Leaf market, the Tuttle Leaf green slash black market in the top of New Zealand is hilarious. Like, we were like driving around, it was a part of Mangere East that we didn't know, and we were like, oh, that must be it. All the cars were going there so that we could have our roto for our Christmas dinners, you know. So there's this, 
uh, you know, and, and um, followers on Facebook, like, because there's all these groups of like, okay, these guys have really good roto, and this one, it's this kind, and right? And there's something really, I think, important about keeping this stuff outside of the reaches of capitalism, and that's why I'm sort of interested in talking about gardening and the profound thing that happens when you grow your own kai um, to be balanced with the reality of um, more Māori people um, over time are homeless and not homeowners. And so um, how do you garden when you, um, when you don't just have, don't have food security but you don't have other kinds of security as well? So I also think, because there's a class element to this, right? There's a class element to this. Who has the time, who has the resources, who has the land um, to get to garden? So I think, but I think, so by, by the time Titelia is an adult, then I think I'm called for the supermarkets to start, you know, coming on board. What I wouldn't want was for it to be like a new, a new cool like Māori thing that we can commodify and, and then suddenly it's all been kind of swept away from us again. Can I ask a question then? Um, I thought that the, the connection uh, you made to voyaging was, was so interesting. Um, and I want, I mean, so much of um, the, the way that voyaging has been thought about and um, recovered in places like Hawaii um, can, is about um, trans-oceanic connections and knowledge sharing. And, um, do you see similar potentials or similar connections already taking form around food sovereignty? Um, and how do they negotiate, I guess, some of the really extreme differences in climate and things that you've spoken about? Yeah. Um, part, of, part of me wants to say I don't know. Like, I think there are probably, there probably are some networks. Um, you can't, you, you head into problems when you start trying to do stuff like take um, foods from one country to another when you've got countries like New Zealand that won't let people bring different items in, right? So there are questions of like how do you how do you how do you on a practical level without smuggling things in your pockets and hoping the border security, you know, like T V show wasn't on that day. You know, like there there are kind of there are those kind of very practical um, implications of the colonial imposition of state boundaries um, that we used to be able to navigate in certain ways. Um, uh, metaphorically and literally um, to one another and I'm not sure that um, and, and I think we have these kind of state boundaries now kind of getting in the way of that sort of thing. Um, I think the thing that will become interesting is as you know Pacific people have always moved around the region but we kind of have this new era arriving as people are starting to think about different kinds of um, foods and gardening that's possible given climate change is happening and given that people are having to move to other places because their home islands are um, either the water is, has become salty or the, the land is, has shifted um, to an extent that they can't grow those crops anymore. So one of the things that um, in a lot of places in the Pacific at the moment is people are saying um, we used to understand the ecosystem as a kind of, as a system. So you knew that when that thing sprouted there, that kind of fish was running there, that was the time you could dig that root up there, it would be the perfect pliability to make the tool for that thing over there. Now with these changes in temperature that we already are experiencing, um, those kind of alarm systems of like, hey, I'm flowering, go grab the fish, um, that stuff is all out of sync. Um, and so there's kind of the, um, that, the implications of that for thinking about what gardening means are, are kind of huge. 
and I'll leave it there. They're enormous. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.